It's nice to be back with you. Um, COVID had a little um, round in our home and uh, we're recovered and doing well. Thanks for your prayers and concern for that. We did not get to go on our vacation. Um, it's one of those things where you accept the sovereignty of God and uh, that's always a good thing to do. And, but we're glad, both of us, to be here with you today. No place I'd rather be than here. And uh, I would invite you now to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now what I'm going to do today is sort of give you a, an overview of the king Israel requested. Actually, Saul's name means to request or to ask, and he is certainly the king like the nations around them. Uh, when I read about Saul, I used to hold him in contempt when I was a younger man for some of his shenanigans, but as an older man, I understand him so well, and I see him as a tragedy. I actually love Saul. And I feel great uh, grief over a life lost. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, well, I thought this sermon series was on the life of David, and we haven't talked about David yet. We will, but Saul's life is so intertwined and interlaced with David's, and there's such a contrast between the two that I thought it would be beneficial to again establish a little groundwork on the kingship and life of Saul up to the point where David is anointed as the new king. And I want us to look at Saul today, and we're going to see three things about him. We're going to see the gradual rise of Saul and his kingship. Number two, we're going to see the test of Saul. And number three, we're going to see the fall of Saul. So there is a brief summary in chapter 14, which I think is a little bit of an unusual place to put it, of Saul's kingship. And so we'll look at chapter 14, verses 47 through 40, 52. And this is the verdict of history, not the verdict of God. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies, all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the second, or the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul had saw 
when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today as we take this look into the life of King Saul, you would speak to us. Our needs are so varied, yet in reality they can be addressed by your word today as your spirit works among us. So we ask that. We ask that you open our eyes to behold wonderful truth out of your word and that that truth would penetrate our hearts and be the birth of change in us that makes us more and more into the glory and image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. King Saul was in ruins. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. His mind and his emotions were in chaos. Saul entered the biblical story magnificently. His stature is compelling. His humility is endearing. Samuel wasn't exaggerating when he presented Saul. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people were entirely enthusiastic, shouting their approval. Long live the king. Everything about him was promising. When you looked at Saul by appearance or for appearance sake, and when you saw Saul on the outside, he was a really special specimen. He was a head and shoulders taller than anybody. And guys that are my height always don't like guys that are taller. You know, it just bugs us. You know, it, it, it stirs up the short man syndrome in us, I guess. I don't know. But Saul was a really good-looking guy. From all appearances, this had to be the perfect choice. I mean, he was the starting center on the basketball team if they had had one. He was the homecoming king, which I understand a few of you have been before. Um, he was quite pleasing to the eyes. Every man wanted to be him, and every woman wanted to be with him. Saul, what a guy. And his start couldn't have come better. I mean, he, he just possessed everything. The guy had charisma, beyond charisma. And so there was no one like him among the people, and everything began so well. The honor and responsibility of being chosen as Israel's first king didn't go to his head. One of the dreaded things in my household growing up as a child was to get the big head. And to get the big head mean, meant that you were full of yourself and gloating in your own glory. And my dad was very quick to pop, to pop that right away with his instruments. He had several of them. But Saul was not that type. He was actually kind of humble. He was kind of uh, uh, not demeaning, but just sort of unassuming. Uh, the honor and responsibility of being chosen as Israel's first king didn't go to his head. He kept right on even doing ordinary farm work. Whatever else being a king meant to Saul, it certainly didn't mean privilege. It didn't mean exemption from the chores. When the first crisis of his reign came and the call went out to deliver Jabesh Gilead in a military expedition, the people came out one and all. 
That's because he cut up an ox and sent parts to all the tribes, by the way. There wasn't a laggard among them showing them that they were as willing to follow him into danger as they were to praise him at the inauguration. The first military effort, the deliverance of Jabesh Gilead, from the Ammonites was a resounding success. By the way, the name, listen to this. This is how the Bible is. The name of the king of the Ammonites was Nahash. You know where else you see that word? In Genesis chapter 3, it's the same word, serpent. So the first person that Saul crushed was the serpent. Don't you think? Some of the people of Israel began to say, he is the one. Some of you watch these fantasy series. I'm not going to name any of them because some of them I probably shouldn't be watching. But you watch these fantasy series and they're always medieval. And it's always about kings and it's always about, and they're always looking for who? They're always looking for the one. Don't you remember in Genesis 3.16 where it says, the woman shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Well, Saul has crushed the head. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he is the servant king. Maybe he's going to be the Messiah. Maybe he's going to lead Israel to its glory days. Maybe it will all come true. We've been waiting and waiting. I mean, we went through the ex. I mean, we went through slavery in Egypt for 465 years. We came out in the Exodus. We wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We crossed the Jordan River. We took uh, the land promised to us militarily, almost. Then we went through the period of judges, which ran a cycle. But now we have a king. We're like other nations. And now our times are coming. Happy days are here again. It's like the first month after an election. Everything is wonderful. Everything has fallen into place. And so Saul was regarded as quite the military guy. The first military effort was successful. The defeat of the Ammonites was followed with a resounding success. uh, And then it was followed by victories right and left over the Philistines who were a burr in Israel's saddle. As matters developed, it turned out that not only was he a good general, but he overall was a pretty good guy. Following that first victory, when he was still riding high on the zealous enthusiasm of his supporters, cries went up for him to purge the riffraff and the worthless fellows who had refused to join in the earlier acclamation of Saul's kingship. They wanted Saul to do him in. Saul was gracious and generous in his exercise of power, and he refused to do so. And although Saul continued to assert assert superiority over the enemies at every front, it wasn't long before signs began to appear that all was not well. Here's the tricky thing. With being a king over Israel, it wasn't just about military. It wasn't just about rulership. It was about covenant. It was about covenant and covenant ethics. Saul was not only beholden to the people, but he was ultimately beholden to Yahweh. And he was ultimately beholden to Deuteronomy, uh, 
chapter, I believe it's 17, where it talks about the king being the one who was responsible for fidelity or obedience to the Sinai covenant, the covenant of Moses. If the king obeyed, God would bless the nation. If the king disobeys, God would curse the nation and they would lose their most precious gift, the land. And so Saul's responsibility wasn't just to defeat the enemies. It wasn't just to be king over Israel, but ultimately it was to be in covenant relationship with God. And we're going to see that Saul was more a king like the nations than he was a man after God's own heart, desiring covenant fidelity with Yahweh. So what a tragic story. What a tragic story. We're going to look a little bit more in detail at some of it. While the defeat of the brutal Philistines and the mean Amalekites feature prominently in the storytelling, we begin to pick up indications that Saul, for all his charisma and all his charm, wasn't very interested in God. He just wasn't very interested in God. He became more and more absorbed in the work itself and in himself. The work as such didn't seem to suffer for the campaigns against the Philistines at Michmash and against the Amalekites in the Sinai were totally satisfyingly decisive. But in each instance, Samuel confronted Saul with acts of disobedience against God that took place in the course of carrying out his work. Neither act of disobedience appeared to Saul to be any big thing, as if it was sinful. Neither involved immorality or so-called injustice. Both of them made perfect sense in terms of military strategy. In fact, both acts were dictated by very good military strategy. But Saul failed to see that they were disobedience to the covenant-keeping God who wanted Saul to keep covenant. And so as a result of that, Saul's rise was gradual, but there were turning points that ultimately led him into a life that we could describe as disaster, total disaster. So Saul started well, and as we look at the rise of Saul, we again encounter the delicate balance that the king held before the people and before God. As a result, Saul was to administer a kingdom through covenant. And as a re result of that, his obedience to the covenant served as the distinction of Israel as a light to the nations. The purpose of Israel in the Bible has always been not to separate itself and seclude itself from the nations, but rather to become a light to the nations. And so therefore the king exhibited in his covenant fidelity to God the reality of Yahweh, the God of all gods, the God of all creation, the God of redemption out of Egypt. But as a result, Saul didn't see it that way, and the majority of the kings who followed him did not fulfill their ordained role and fell to the dangers inherent in kingship without covenant. God must always be the true ruler of Israel. 
and he was to rule over them and they were to be his people. Nonetheless, he could exercise rule through a human king. Saul's ascent was accomplished in stages. According to 1 Samuel 9 through 13, Saul was anointed by Samuel in response to God's command. And the two had met while Saul was tracking his father's stray donkeys or asses, whichever one you prefer. And so, I think the Hebrew is asses, pretty sure. God must always be, uh, um, so later at Mizpah, he was singled out by lot from the clan of the Matrites of the tribe of Benjamin. The political expedience of choosing a Benjamite frequently has been noted. As Saul himself suggested, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin's political insignificance, the least of the tribes of Israel, minimized the threat for the other tribes in choosing a king from one tribe to rule over all others. Saul's modesty showed itself at Mizpah when he hid in the baggage as Samuel attempted to introduce him. He couldn't find him. He was hiding. A striking figure, Saul gained a good deal of popular support in spite of the opposition of some rabble-rousers. The Ammonite invasion put Saul's charismatic gifts to the test. The privately anointed king and publicly held as such, he was still farming in Gibeah when he learned of the Ammonite raid on Jabesh-Gilead. The tribes were mustered, and the Ammonite forces ravaged or routed. Saul seems to have regarded Samuel as sort of a co-regent or the prophetic uh, pro uh, proclaimer, uh, the fellow judge. Saul's success quelled any opposition to his kingship. And once again at Gilgal, Samuel proclaimed him king. These stories of Saul's rise to power need not be reviewed as separate and independent accounts, perhaps, but perhaps as stages in the transition from judgeship to monarchy. Indeed, their variety speak for authenticity. The hero's acclaim given Saul seemed to sharpen Samuel's awareness of the monarchy's potential menace to Israel's life and faith. Some commentators and some scholars seem to think that Samuel was really peeved and churlish uh, when it came to Saul, that he didn't like him very much because he was jealous of him because he occupied the position that Samuel thought he should have. And so Samuel had issues in dealing with him, and that's why he cracked down so hard on him. So is Saul a victim or a villain? We're going to see neither really one. He's a tragedy. He's a tragedy. So, let's talk about the three tests that Saul was subjected to. He assesses King Saul, God does, Saul by placing him through a number of tests. And since Yahweh is sovereign and Yahweh has standards for kings, it is inevitable that Yahweh will assess Saul's effectiveness by his faithfulness to those standards. As this assessment unfolds in 1 Samuel 13 through 15, it becomes apparent that the Lord does not judge according to whether or not Saul performs as well as kings of other nations. Though Israel does so, God determines Saul's future by the king's obedience to the divine commands. 
When Saul fails in this matter, Yahweh removes him as the divinely anointed ruler. The human agent who carries God's assessment is Samuel the prophet. The prophet king scenario will be repeated several times in the history of Israel. The prophet is God's covenant prosecutor who comes to the king and assesses his rulership by God's covenant standards. Saul's failure unfolds in three acts, none of which affects Israel's success in battle. First, he offers a sacrifice himself when Samuel fails to come as promised and his arm dwindles, his army dwindles, as it were, before a major battle. Samuel informs him that he's done foolishly, so foolishly, that he has forfeited the, forfeited the chance for God to give him e an eternal kingdom. This is Adam, the second Adam, as it were, falling. It is not through your dynasty, it is not through your seed that the world will be saved. Saul blew it. He refused to wait. He waited seven days. And militarily, this was the right decision. His army was dwindling before his face, and he, no way he could win. And so he got tired of waiting on Samuel, and, and a good pragmatic person that he was, he decided to go on and offer the sacrifice of himself. No big deal. But that violated the covenant. That violated what God has said. So for him, that stuff was secondary. For him, being king was everything, and winning the battle was everything. And if he had to spend his religious capital, as it were, to do so, he was fully willing to do it. So that's the first crack we see in Saul's armor. He is offering, taking on the priestly responsibilities rather than waiting. And what matters most after the decision is, is that God seeks another king and that Saul's decision, not dark fate, brings God to this conclusion. The second thing Saul does is he makes a rash vow that his own son troubles the people, though God fights for Israel against the Philistines, chapter 14, and despite Jonathan's victories that prove that God is with Israel, Saul swears that the army will not eat until he has been avenged. This oath is akin to Jephthah's ill-conceived oath in the book of Judges and reveals that Saul is out of touch with God and with, indeed with the nature and human need as well. Armies have to eat. They can't fast. They need nourishment. It implies that Saul sees war more as a vindication for his, himself than as a vindication for Yahweh and the security of the people. In other words, he acts like other kings. Only the people's intervention keeps Saul from executing Jonathan as Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter in the book of Judges. Saul, again, makes a rash vow, and we're beginning to see that this kingship thing is coming true that we saw in 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel the prophet warns the people, if you have a king like the nations, here's what's going to happen. And we see it unfold in living color, flesh and blood, in the kingship of Saul. Two strikes. Two strikes. Not waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, 
making a rash vow that should have sacrificed the life of his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is quite a character. By the way, I never knew that Jonathan was at least 30 or 40 years older than David. I always thought they were kind of the same age. At least all the pictures in my Bible story picture book had them about the same age. Jonathan is the one that brings me a lot of grief too because what a great guy he was and what a, a faithful servant. But the third test, Samuel brings an explicit command from God that Saul must destroy the Amalekites, must destroy the Amalekites in battle. And the reason is Amalek's ancient opposition to Israel. And the method of war is spelled out in Deuteronomy. It's holy war. And in holy war, you destroy everything. You don't bring home any prisoners. You don't bring home any booty or loot. You totally destroy it. It's called the carom in Hebrew. It is utter destruction because of the Amalekites' history with Israel. And we know, if you know your Bible and you've ever read 1 Samuel chapter 15, though Saul gets an explicit command and his disobedience means a refusal to honor God's revealed word, Though God gives the victory, Saul spares his royal counterpart part, and the best of the spoil, destroying only worthless booty. And again, he has acted precisely as virtually any other king would, that misunderstand, thus misunderstanding what constitutes success in being a king over Israel. Yahweh rejects Saul, and Samuel has to tell him so. And so Saul sets up a monument to himself, more evidence of his attitude about war. When confronted about it, he owns his disobedience only under much pressure. You should read 1 Samuel 15 when you get home today and look at how Saul made excuse after excuse after excuse. It is a transcript of my teenage years trying to offer excuses why I didn't do the virtuous thing all the time but it's pathetic the excuses and it's obvious that Saul is an idolater it's obvious that obvious that he lived for power he lived for control he lived for pleasure he lived for approval and that's who Saul is and that's what Saul's about and the idols of his heart led him to do these things he didn't see anything wrong with it. What's the big deal? Kings always do this. Why am I not to do this? Because God said so. And when God says so, that means something. And when you sin against God, he will forgive you, consequences notwithstanding. We need to remember that. You think, you think we get away with sin scot-free? Yes, our sins are forgiven. Yes, Jesus bore them in his body on the tree. Yes, they will never be brought up to a, us again. But we reap what we sow. Consequences of the sins come home. And they come home to us. And we bear those consequences. And so what Saul did here was spiritual suicide. He just didn't think much about God. He didn't see what God had to do with any of it. What's the point? of God doing this. 
Again, it must be stressed that Yahweh decides to reject Saul. The one who chose Saul is the one who can replace him. That was it for Saul. Now, he stayed king for many years, but it was over as far as God was concerned. And it took a while, as we will see, for David to be anointed and ascend to the throne. God had his other purposes. But the rejection is final, and it's over. And the initial instance of kingship here foreshadows God's assessment of every future king in the book of Kings. There the author falls into a comfortable pattern of noting a ruler's ascension, length of rule, and effectiveness. Always success is measured by adherence to the covenant, by faithfulness to the covenant responsibilities. Anything that results in mixed reviews or worse, Saul himself never overtly worshipped other gods, yet he determines the nature of his own religion himself, which in itself is a type of syncretism. As king, he forgets to yield his will to his own sovereign. For this he pays an awful price, turning himself into one of the most tragic figures in all of history. As we continue, and we will as we look at David's life, we're still going to interface quite a bit with Saul. But there are years of darkness that follow this moment. Years of darkness. Saul's repentance in the beginning sounded kind of genuine, though the way it's rephrased, it could raise serious doubts. Was Saul really sorry that he sinned, or was he sorry for being found out? Only God knows that. But what is evident is the heartbreaking story that Saul becomes mentally unstable and slips progressively into paranoia with its uh, attendant delusions. He begins to entertain suspicious suspicions instead of facing the truth. He gives place to envious, grudging spirit. He schemes for another's downfall. He retreats into self-pity and a persecution complex. He came to the place where he could only intermittently recognize the truth. In the end, he even turned to the powers of darkness. Saul turned to spiritism, which was definitely forbidden by the law of Moses. One thing, however, Samuel could affirm, which Saul could at best guess, Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. 1 Samuel 28, dear Saul, he forsook the way of obedience, walked deeper and deeper into the valley of deadly darkness, but the Lord never deserts those to whom he has given a new heart. He brought Saul out of despair, delusion, and failure to where the wicked cease from turmoil and the wearier rest and those in bondage take their ease. And so Saul is a tragic figure. In the end, it appears, the Lord had mercy upon his soul. But what do we take home for us? What's the point of spending this time looking at the life of a tragic character like Saul? The text we read this morning was a, a judgment of history. And... When we read the text, it sort of catches us by surprise because we've just heard an extended story of Saul in the most negative tones. 
And we know the rest of the story will only intensify negativism. But now we hear such a positive assessment, who do we believe? If we want the truth, we must believe both. Verses 47 and 48 of our text this morning constitute what we may call the judgment of history. By that, I do not mean that any other judgments are unhistorical or inaccurate. By the judgment of history, I mean the way that people have of assessing a man's achievements, contributions, and relative success or lack of it. History's judgment is that external human calculation of a person's life and work. It's what folks can easily observe. By such a standard, Saul had made his mark and made it well and defeated his enemies in war and delivered Israel. But judge history does not have the decisive verdict. We tend to deify history sometimes like we do nature, you know, mother nature. The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, whether political or military, but covenant. Covenant. Yahweh is not looking for winners, but disciples. That is the reason for the negative undertow in chapters 13 and 14. Saul has begun to fail at the point of covenant in that he did not submit to the covenant God. And for the Bible, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. And we have these two estimates of Saul before us, one historical and the other covenantal. And covenantally, he miserably fails. Saul is not the second Adam. And so they will go and look for another king, Samuel will, and he will learn that it's not the outward appearance of the king, it's the heart. God looks on the heart. Motives mean everything. Motives mean everything. And so God will turn to a man after his own heart. And we will see that David, of course, is not flawless. He actually does some of the same things Saul does. But the covenantal aspect is is the weight of it all. But these stories point to something beyond that. You know, I only half understood the gospel most of my life because I didn't really understand covenant theology, which is why I think most people do not understand the Old Testament very well, is they do not understand the centrality of the Deuteronomic history and covenant theology. And what that means is Jesus Christ himself came as the second Adam to obey the covenant and inaugurate and usher in the kingdom. He rendered perfect obedience to the covenant responsibilities of the law on our behalf, and he died for the covenant cursings of those who disobey. Saul's redemption was not found in his kingship, but in the king who is to come. My redemption is found. I will never, ever live a life where I can say I am blessed because God, I obeyed God completely. I want to obey God completely, but I can never say that 
Why? I am blessed because Jesus obeyed the covenant completely. He's the redeemer I need. He's the king I need. He obeyed God's law completely, thus winning me the blessings of covenant obedience. While at the same time taking all of the ways in which I have broken the covenant, which are too many to number, and suffering covenant curse, being banished and exiled and abandoned by God upon the cross. That's what these stories point to. No, Saul was never going to be the one. David will not be the one, but ultimately someone from David's line will be the one. And he's come, and he's the Messiah, and he is your and my only hope. You should be rejoicing at how the Bible points to. You really can't understand the gospel unless you understand covenant. You can't. Not fully. You can understand it at a level. But understanding covenant obedience, that's what God requires. And so you have this Apparently, irresolvable tension and conflict between law and love. You know, does God require 100% obedience to the law, which none of us can ever give, but he says in the end, oh, I don't care, come on in. I love you. No, he sends his son to take the irresolvable tension and resolve it on our behalf. Therefore, God upholds his law, his holiness, his justice, at the same time extending to us love and mercy and grace. That's what we need is a Messiah because none of us qualify for the job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text regarding Saul. And it's so tragic we love to see people start well and end well. But apparently, he ended where the rest of us in the room would have ended up, apart from your grace. We thank you for the way that you pointed us to the reality that the one to come had not come at that point. He would come, and now we look back upon the reality that he has come, and we live in an intimate relationship with you because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are grateful for your redemption. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.